So my name is Chen Wei. I'm giving a talk today on functional medicine. I just want to uh, start off by asking how many guys here have heard of the term functional medicine? Okay, well, for some of you guys, it may be just preaching to the choir, but hopefully for a lot of you guys, it will be good uh, review. And for those that don't know about functional medicine, hopefully you'll, uh, you can have a better idea of what it uh, means by the end of the talk. And then also another question, how many people here are actually uh, like prescribers, providers, um, doctors, PAs, NPs, things like that? Okay. Any people here are non-medical people? Okay. All right, good. Well, this is for you too, so I hope this is helpful. Um, so uh, I have nothing to disclose, and we got some objectives. Um, I won't go through these much, but I think basically this is how I structure my talk today is basically why functional medicine, what it is, and then how it can help. So I'll first talk about the why before I tell you guys exactly what it is for those that you don't know. But um, to start off here, I would like to um, talk about the current state of health in our country. And admittedly, I'm American, so I, I basically am mostly focusing on America. But I think you'll see as throughout the talk how it could also be relevant for those guys that go on missions and go um, live in other countries as well. But... Um, I want to show you guys pictures. Some of you guys may have seen this before. For um, those that can't see it very well, um, on the left side, it's uh, the, the um, prevalence of obesity. Whoops, scrolling through. It's the prevalence of obesity in our country, um, and on the right side is diabetes. And um, as I go, it just keeps scrolling here. You'll see how the colors, as they get darker, that means the higher the prevalence. So it starts in 1994, and basically each year, you'll watch as it changes color here. Okay, so this is basically 2014. This is the last slide. Pretty much everyone on the left side. Um, uh oh, this thing is auto scrolling here. But basically, um, pretty much our country has changed dramatically in terms of the obesity rate from 1994 to 2015. Basically, in short amount of time, um, it's gone from close to less than 14% to over 26%. Um, and same with diabetes. There's a corresponding increase as well in the prevalence. Now, that's America. What about other countries? So I found a map of um, the world map here, and this is populated from over 1,700 different obesity-related studies. And it studies over 180 countries, over 19 million people. So just a spoiler alert, it doesn't look good either. So... The darker the color, again, the higher the prevalence. So um, for those who can't see it, the white color is less than 2%, and then as it gets darker, it will be over 30%. So it starts and just keeps going. So here, the U.S. is over 20%, uh, Australia's over 20%. You can see even parts of Africa, um, it's 
greater than 20%. U.S. is about 30% now in 2007. Okay, so this is the last year. Um, sorry, this slide is auto-scrolling here. Let's see if I can get rid of this. So basically, pretty much the whole world by 2014, except for certain parts of Africa and India and China, have become obese, have become obese, right? And so that's pretty alarming. So what has changed in basically one or two generations that the prevalence of obesity has increased that much? And it's not just obesity, there's other things like autism. So here's a slide on autism. 1975, the prevalence was 1 in 5,000. In 2009, is 1 in 110. And the most recent data I found in 2018 was 1 in 59. Now, some people may say, oh, well, the, it's just a change in the diagnostic methods. And I grant that. I think there is a big part of that. Um, there's a small asterisk underneath the slide you can't really see, but it says about 25% of the changes may be due to diagnostic criteria changes, but the rest is maybe environmental. There'd be a lot of other factors as well. So pretty alarming how fast that chronic illness um, has changed. And then there's immune disorders like autoimmune disorders like multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, type 1 diabetes. There's atopic disorders like asthma. Um, you can look at dementia. As in, it's going to be increasing over time. And I think part of this is just from the aging population. Right? Um, there's increasing baby boomers, increasing people living longer, but the question is, are they living healthier? And unfortunately, I wish we could say what well, we are, but we're not. Uh, bone fractures had doubled in about 25 years. This is kind of older data from 1970 to 1994. Um, fertility changes here. Since 1960s, total global fertility rates have been cut in half. So. And again, some may argue, say, well, we have better birth control and we're trying to population control. And that, again, that might be part of it. But um, if you compare that with the male, so the, the previous slide was the female. Now the male fertility changes, and this is sperm count, has gone down in Europe, in North America, in other, country, uh, other parts of the world. So something's happening to our world, um, right? And so my, my, my last graphic here basically is to put the point that what we're dealing with is an increase in chronic conditions in the world, right? I think a lot of you guys that here that are interested in missions and um, also uh, deal with acute illnesses, and I think we excel at that in our country. We do really great at that, and it's very useful to have the tools and the training to be able to help people because a lot of what they deal with are acute things. But unfortunately, we're going to be dealing with more and more chronic illnesses that are what they call long latency things that don't just develop overnight. They are chronic conditions. So here's a slide on what's, what's wrong with our current, hair, uh, current healthcare model. Okay? Now, this is just a slide here on healthcare expenses from U.S. compared to some of the other countries. And I would say the first thing is financial inefficiency. In America, we spend almost double the second second closest highest spending country, which is Germany. So we spend about $10,000 per person. And um, if you compare our health outcomes to the 11 wealthiest countries, we are dead last, 11th, in terms of maternal mortality and in terms of life expectancy. So there's something, at least in this country, we're not being very efficient with our health care expenses. 
The second problem is we're treating chronic illnesses with an acute disease paradigm. Okay, so let me explain that a little bit more. So like I just mentioned, um, a lot of us, if, if you guys have gone on, again, missions in third world countries, you know, we deal with a lot of acute illnesses. And I think, again, what we, we deal very well with this. So if you have an infection, you treat it with antibiotics, right? Take care of the bug, the, the drug for the bug, and done. Or someone has uh, trauma, okay, you help that person, maybe do some surgery, make sure you stabilize them, and great, uh, fixed. So we get a gold star for that. Okay, so the problem is, does this model transfer over to chronic illness, right? If someone has gastric, uh, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, does antacids basically solve the issue? Do they just take that for the rest of their life and say, okay, that's it. We found the drug for the bug or the pill for the ill, and that solves the issue. Or hypertension, you know, uh, do we just give hypertensives and does that solve the issue? Now, don't hear me wrong, I'm not anti-drug, I prescribe drugs, I, I work in an internal medicine office, so I do prescribe drugs, but I'm asking the deeper question is, do these chronic illnesses, are they solved so simply by just giving a medication? Um, we can give more examples, migraines, you know, mood disorders, do we just pick the right, if we can identify the right medications, does that solve the issue? And I think, I think most people would understand, no, of course not. And, and these are a lot of times Band-Aids, but Band-Aids may be necessary, right? Someone comes in with a blood pressure of 200 over 100, and I'm not going to say, well, let's do the holistic approach. I'm probably going to give them medication right at that moment to bring down their, their blood pressure. But what's the long-term solution? And this is kind of a graphic, just kind of illustrates the home, is depression a Prozac deficiency, right? Kind of facetious, but... Obviously not. Is GERD a Nexium deficiency, right? It's, it's not. And I think um, so oftentimes as healthcare practitioners, um, it can be hard in, when you have 10, 15 minutes with someone and you don't really, can't really get to the root of, of the, the issue. Um, and some days I, obviously I, I just, I, I can't do that either. If someone has a headache, I ask them, did you take, you know, what's, did you stay hydrated? Did you take an ibuprofen? No, you haven't. Why, why don't you take an ibuprofen first? And see if it persists, right? And, of course, we rule out all the serious things. But, um, again, my, my point is we want to look at long-term here. So the third issue that we deal with here in our country and a, a lot of places, too, not just our country, but is we over-pathologize, I feel like, is that we turn symptoms into diseases, okay? So let's say someone has a headache, have we arrived at a diagnosis, the final diagnosis, just because we called it what it is? Or let's just say it's a migraine headache. Okay, you have a migraine. All right, we've named it, we've blamed it, and now we have to tame it, right? Is that our approach? Well, what's causing that headache? Is this person hydrated? Are they eating things they are sensitive to? Um, have they been under a lot of stress? Right? We should ask those questions, and a lot of practitioners do, so that's, that's good. Um, just because we could put an ICD-10 code to it doesn't mean we found the cause, right? We, we need to find something we need to dig deeper. And so a lot of times I think we get, get complacent and with diagnoses. Oh, I have a certain diagnosis, so this is what I have. But the question is, wait, why? What caused it? We should be asking those kind of questions. Um, another thing we can tend to over-pathologize is basically normal human transitions. And... 
So, you know, we deal with women, deal with menopause, and a lot of times the way things are perceived, it almost seems like menopause has become a disease, right? And, I mean, women have been dealing with menopause for as long as um, creation, basically. But nowadays it seems like, oh, there's a drug for the menopause, there's a drug for this, there's a drug for that. Loss of libido as you age, um, there's a term for that now, hypoactive sexual disorder. Is that really a disease, though? You know, this question, maybe it's part of human aging. How about grieving over a lost one uh, or a loved one? Maybe you lost your spouse. Maybe you lost your husband, your wife, and it's been hard, and you're still grieving a year later. Well, there's a name for that, too, prolonged grief disorder, because you met the criteria for over a certain amount of time, six months, a year. Sorry, you're, you have a disorder. Maybe I should give you a, a drug now, right? And because it, it meets a criteria. And so we got to be careful of not over-pathologizing things that may just be part of normal human life. Number four, the thing with our healthcare it, that we're having to deal with is we're dealing with a lot of things that we didn't have to deal with 30, 40, 50 years ago. And some of these things that I put on here may be a little controversial, and that's okay, but this is trying to state the facts, is that the world we live in now is not the same world that we lived in before. So there's increased use of antibiotics, and there's resistance to that. Um, there's so much more exposure to chemicals and synthetic human-made things. So last I checked, there was about 86,000 synthetic human-made chemicals in the government database, and that's just increasing by thousands every year. So humans are having to deal with these um, su substances that we never dealt with before, again, 50, 100 years ago. GMO crops right, are, are, are um, a lot of um, foods maybe genetically modified. Again, what, what, how you think about that could be you know, on either spectrum, but that's something new. Uh, pesticides, herbicides um, are in our food supply. They're being sprayed a lot more. Um, EMF exposure, right? We have cell phones, you know, went from 2G, 3G, 4G, now 5G. Do we know the long-term safety of that? And maybe we won't until, you know, years later. And there are some people that are very sensitive to that. Um, technology, even the cell phone, again, there's, there's more demands with technology that we have to deal with. And then just with all this stuff, there's chronic stress, right, and problems with that. We've also lost a lot few things over the last few decades, right? Family structures are not the same as they used to be 50 years ago. Families, do they eat together anymore? Not as often as they used to. And a lot of times you eat maybe in front of the TV. There's not as much conversation. There's breakdown of social structures. Um, there's more people identifying themselves as a religious without any religion. They've lost their faith in a God, in, in God, and accompanying that, we, everybody knows our morals are changing and unfortunately declining in our country and throughout the world as well. And there's more things that we deal with nowadays, including um, shootings, bullying, identity theft. Again, a lot of the stuff was never um, dealt with 30, 40, 50 years ago. Maybe um, certain aspects of it. But the point of all this, again, is that the world we deal with is different. And a lot of these things I listed, they affect your health, right? They're not just... I'm not just saying that just for the sake of saying it. They're, these are things that affect health, and they may be synergistic. They may actually compound them upon one another. And so what's the solution to all this? Well, here I'm going to talk about functional medicine, and I would dare say that functional medicine is one helpful approach to helping deal with all these um, challenges that we have in our healthcare system. 
If you guys are, uh, some of you guys here may be familiar with like naturopathic medicine or um, are maybe OD, um, osteopathic doctors. So you, some of these concepts may be familiar to you. But I think this, I like this graphic because it's just basically a good depiction of what functional medicine is. It's basically, it's root cause medicine. You look at the roots. And again, I'll show you, uh, describe that a little bit more as the talk goes on. But a lot of times we just hang out in the branches. We only see what's flourishing outside, and we don't see what's going down deep down inside. Okay, so having kind of introduced you to our healthcare system and what, uh, and the current state of healthcare, what is functional medicine? Why, what, what am I talking about here? So this is the overview of today's talk here. Okay, number one is a system-based approach. So what does that mean? It means we look at the interconnected whole, right? So in, in school, a lot of times, just for the sake of simplicity, we break down body systems into different parts. So we have the skeletal system, we have the endocrine system, we have musculoskeletal system, and we study them individually. And that's good because it helps us put, um, it helps us focus on that system. But we sometimes forget in healthcare that everything's connected, right? Uh, the skeletal system is con uh, connected to the endocrine system. The lymphatic system is connected to the circulatory system. Everything is interlinked. So what the implication of this is maybe someone's skin issue is due to their gut issue, right? Maybe their hormone dysfunction is due to their psychological issue. Uh, maybe their uh, reproductive issue is due to some um, urinary issue. So everything is linked together. And so for practitioners, we, we try to remember this, and then for people here that are not practitioners, try to remember that too. Sometimes things are deeper than they appear. And nowadays we have so many specialists and subspecialists that so oftentimes clinicians, those clinicians are so focused on what their specialty is that um, there's no one looking at the bigger picture. And so um, this is just a reminder for that. Okay, so... Question, example one, what do you do with someone that comes in with all these symptoms? Fatigue, muscle achiness, depression, brain fog, tingling in hands, reflux, constipation. All right. So maybe if, again, this comes in in my clinic, got 15 minutes with a patient, um, I may say, okay, uh, I don't know if I can tackle all these today for you, but um, depression, let me, uh, like, how, how long have you been feeling sad for? Like, uh, maybe six months. Okay. That's kind of a long time. What's going on? Oh, some family issues. Okay, well, um, that's kind of long. Uh, maybe maybe I'll, you can try some Prozac. Maybe you can try some Paxil or, or some other SSRI that you choose, right? And then uh, brain fog, oh, that's kind of vague. I'm not really sure. Maybe how much hours of sleep are you getting? Six hours? Oh, okay, you just need to sleep a little more. Uh, tingling in your hands. Uh, let me do this test. Oh, it looks like you may have carpal tunnel. Hmm. Maybe you should just wear some wrist splints, and I can send you to a, to a, to a um, neurologist, maybe get some nerve conduction tests just to confirm it. Uh, reflex constipation, okay, how much water are you drinking, or how much fiber are you drink, uh, eating? Oh, not enough? Okay. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully that helps, and see you next time, right? That's, that may be one thing. So the question is, what if all these were related and connected? Right? So these are all signs of low thyroid, hypothyroidism. Okay? There could be other causes, but I'm just showing this that there, there is signs. This is a, uh, all these are signs of hypothyroidism. So maybe if I you know, said, okay, 
you know what? I have a suspicion that there may be something deeper going on. Let's do some blood work or let's um, explore this a little bit more and find out they have hypothyroidism and treat that. A lot of these symptoms will go away. And so it basically helps get to the underlying cause of all that. Now, this is kind of a simplistic um, example. Let's give you a little harder one here. What about this? What is someone with all these conditions, heart disease, cognitive decline, arthritis, asthma, dermatitis, obesity? Hmm. Well, maybe this person's arthritis because they're overweight, they're obese, so that makes sense, right? There's more stress on their joints, so they're hurting more. Um, and yeah, they're obese, so they may probably like or likely to have heart disease. Maybe their cholesterol's a little bit high. Um, let's see, what else? Um, yeah, that's interesting. They have asthma, dermatitis. Maybe there's some type of allergy symptom going on. Okay. So to me, what pops out as I, I wrote these things is, okay, all of these have underlying cause of inflammation. So heart disease is, you know, inflammation in the arteries. Cognitive decline could be neuroinflammation. Arthritis could be joint inflammation. Asthma could be uh, lung inflammation, dermatitis. By the word itis, right, it's always inflammation. Obesity, um, obesity when you have someone has extra adipose tissue, that releases inflammatory cytokines, um, chemicals in the body. So maybe I would ask him, okay, tell me about your diet. Are you eating enough omega-3s? Maybe you're having too many omega-6s. Are you having too much sugar? Maybe your stress is off the roof. Um, right, so there, maybe there's correlations with this too. Oh, you're taking, um, you're, you're obese, so then you have some reflux symptoms. So your reflux symptoms, you're taking a PPI, like Nexium or Prilosec or something. That has been correlated with cognitive decline. Oh, you've been taking it for 30 years? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and the people taking PPIs may have higher risk of food sensitivities, food allergies. There's research data on that as well. So I can see that as a correlation, right? And so these are things I would, I would ask um, and think about that there is maybe some, something and maybe multiple things underlying all these factors. Okay, so those are just two examples here. Second thing about functional medicine is it's, it's what they call root cause and upstream medicine. Okay, so what I would say, some people would say, okay, well, traditional allopathic medicine is root cause medicine. I mean, you just dig to the cause and there it is. I would say the difference is it digs a little bit deeper, and I'll kind of give an illustration of what I mean by that. So basically the shift in emphasis is what do you have to why do you have it? Right, so you have a headache. Why do you have it? Not what just because you have it, or you have hypothyroidism. Why do you have it? Okay, so this is a, a tree that's commonly used in. Um, this is a credit the Institute for Functional Medicine. They have this tree, but basically what it shows again, kind of like I described earlier on the top there, they have multiple symptoms and different specialties. You know, pulmonology, rheumatology, urology, cardiology, and again, so oftentimes we kind of hover there. But do we dig down deeper into the roots? And so I blew up the roots here, which is sleep, relaxation, exercise, nutrition, hydration, stress, resilience, relationships, trauma, microorganisms, environmental pollutants. So I think a lot of these base things are things that need to be addressed. And as you address a lot of these base things, you can come to find what the root cause is. And if you can somehow... Um, rectify these dysfunctions, 
many of the other symptoms will go away. And again, sometimes it will mean addressing multiple things. You know, there may be trauma and nutrition. There may be stress and sleep. And there's an analogy that says something like if you're sitting on five tacks, does taking away three of those or two of the, or four of those help, you know, take away 80% of the pain? Well, not really because you're still sitting on a tack, right? So if you, someone still has symptoms, what maybe you just we still haven't found that last tack of what is causing it. And so we don't just want to suppress symptoms. We want to try to dig deep into that, and that's what functional medicine tries to do. Okay, so let's go back to our example of hypothyroidism here. Okay, so maybe you go into the, to the doctor's office and the doctor says, all right, good news, we found the cause of your symptoms is hypothyroidism. So you ask, okay, well, what next? I got hypothyroidism. Well, your TSH may be a little bit off, but it's not bad enough that when you put you on medication, we'll just basically monitor it for now. Okay, so, all right, so you, you, is that the plan? Okay, I guess, I guess we'll just do that then. Right, but the, but the question is, wait, why? Why, why is my thyroid kind of off? Why, it doesn't make sense. I don't have a family history of it. Why, why did I suddenly develop thyroid issues? And um, instead of just, you know, this is the plan. Now, of course, a lot of doctors, PAs, MPs, you know, will dig a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe it's caused by medications. There's a heart medication, amiodarone, that is for atrial fibrillation. That could be. A contributor, someone may have had Graves' disease, had hyperthyroidism, had it their thyroid ablated, of course, then needs you know, thyroid medication. Strong family history may play a part, but doesn't necessarily just explain it. I mean, genetics is, you know, they used to think genetics is 70 to 90 percent of um, what determines 70 to 90 percent of how a person develops. Now, the thinking is it's switched to the opposite, where it's more like genetics may be about 10 to 30% of what someone's health is, and then the rest is what to do to your lifestyle factors and um, the environment, so the nature versus nurture, okay? Maybe this person has history of radiation. Maybe they had, you know, esophageal cancer. Maybe they had um, radiation for lymphoma, something like that, and that, that there was a delay, and later on they developed hypothyroidism. Maybe there's something higher up in the brain, pituitary issue, right? And so a good clinician will typically go through these things. And, um, but I would say there's also other things, maybe even deeper than that, too. Sometimes maybe they're just – so if you see here on this graphic here, this basically talk, talks about what is important for production of thyroid hormones, what's important for conversion of thyroid hormones, and what's important for sensitivity to thyroid hormones. So there's multiple steps. So what if this person that has low thyroid is simply because they're not getting enough iron in their diet, or maybe they're not getting a selenium or zinc in their diet? That, that would be interesting to know, and that would be you know, something simple to, to correct. I mean, you see zinc on the left side there. It's important for the production. It's important for the conversion. It's also important for the cellular um, sensitivity of thyroid. You can have thyroid hormone resistance, just like you have insulin resistance, right? And so um, this just, again, requires a little bit of digging. And what if this person had excessive toxin exposure? Maybe they love sushi, and they eat sushi three times a week, and maybe they just have too much mercury, and that mercury can you know, cause problems with uh, production of thyroid hormone. That may be a factor as well. 
uh, other heavy metals and different things like that. Maybe you're just excessively stressed. When you're stressed out, of course, your body's going to say, well, slow down. We don't want you to be working in overdrive, so slow down. And so there's a lot of different factors, and hopefully this is not overwhelming, but basically it just shows you that there's so many factors that can play into something, and so oftentimes, unfortunately, because of lack of time or lack of training, that how medicine is done is, is just says, okay, you have this disease, Let's just take care of it with, again, with, with maybe the right medication. Okay, one more example. Someone complains of digestive symptoms, constipation, diarrhea, sometimes worth the stress. What do you think this is? Irritable bowel, right? Some people say, okay, that's irritable bowel syndrome. All right, I got my diagnosis, irritable bowel syndrome. So at least I know what I have now, and so now I can go about treating it, right? And so I found the root cause, right? Well, not exactly. Um, the question is, what's next? What, why? Why IBS? Why did this person give IBS? Um, this is a slide from uh, basically um, a treatment regimen, basically that talks about the three aspects of IBS. Here's pain, um, bowel motility, and bloating. And I'm sorry if you guys can't see it very well, but basically what you see on most of these is that um, most of these are medications. Um, on the top side, there maybe there's a psyllium fiber, which is not. It's, it's fiber, which is great. Uh, there's psyllium again. There is, uh, let's see, some probiotics down here for the bloating and some probiotics over there for the pain. But other than that, it's kind of like, well, our toolbox is mostly um, medicines. And again, I'm not saying medicines may not be appropriate. They may be appropriate. But the question, again, is why? Um, so this is one thing that sometimes that we do in the clinic, uh, our clinic, and what functional medicine tries to do is what they do a timeline. And the timeline just basically explores someone's health from even from before they were born to what their life, to what their um, current state is. Um, so I would ask questions like, oh, are you... Were you breastfed? Were you vaginal birth? Were you C-section? Right? Is that relevant? That is relevant in the long, in the long term. Uh, tell me about your diet growing up when you're a child. Oh, you had a lot of candy. Oh, you didn't have you know very many um, you know vegetables growing up. Uh, what happened when you were 20? Oh, you had a divorce. Interesting. That really plays into um, your health history. Oh, you had some trauma. What kind of trauma, right? And so all these different factors may be the reason, or at least some contributory reason, why they ended up developing IBS. Well, again, it's not like IBS just popped up overnight, right? There, usually there's a trigger. There's some underlying dysfunction that, that basically triggered it. And so it helps a practitioner see the bigger picture. And this has been oftentimes very valuable for me to kind of help someone Link, oh, they have digestive issues. That didn't just start, you know, 10 years ago when they first started complaining of symptoms. That probably, they were already starting maybe back when they were four years old when they took multiple antibiotics for ear infections, right? Their, their gut um, microbiome was already thrown off at that time. And so it's, it's you kind of have to look back at some of these things. And some of these, these things you can correct and some of them you cannot. But... Um, I say, you know, the more information you have, generally, it's, it's very helpful. Now, if, you know, if, if all that is kind of just 
making your mind spin, I would say to ask the two simple questions, which is, one is, what does this person need to get rid of? Maybe there are too much toxins in their life. There's, maybe there's too many allergies. I'm sorry. There's too much uh, toxins. Maybe they have uh, allergies they're being exposed to, whether it be food allergies, environment allergies. Maybe they have infections uh, that may or may not have been diagnosed. Maybe they have H. pylori. Maybe they have... Um, um, parasites, if, if you're in a different country, but even in the U.S. too. Um, maybe their diet, maybe their stress, right? Get to the root cause of these very, very basics and ask these things. Um, and then, of course, what does this person need to add in? Maybe they just need better nutrients. Maybe they need to work on their sleep. Maybe they need healthy relationships um, and maybe exercise. Now, some of these things, obviously, you can't do all yourself. I mean, there's no way, right? I mean, maybe some of this will require you to refer them out to um, a counselor, a pastor for the relationships, or to, um, you know, sleep. That might be something they, they, they need another, another specialist to help them with. Nutrients, maybe they need a dietitian to help speak to them of how to correct their diet. I mean, it's one thing to tell a person, oh, yeah, it's your diet. Just go out and, you know, go eat healthier. Well, they don't have the tools. So how, how do they know what, what to eat? And so you may need other specialties. And, you know, that's, that's actually good healthcare. It requires a multidisciplinary approach. So um, this is Louis Pasteur. He is the father of modern pathology that um, he, in his day, says the bug, you know, you, you identify the bug and you get rid of it, the person's much better. His opponent at the time was a guy named uh, Antoine Beauchamp, I think that's how you pronounce it. And his theory was what they call the microzymian theory, which is the terrain of the cells was actually much more important. You handle the terrain better, and then everything will get back to normal. Now, I think in our day, we know it's true of both of them, but what they both said was true. I mean, you have to treat, a lot of times you treat the bug, but you also treat the terrain, right? And so I think that's very important, especially even like, I'll give an example, like cancer, right? You, the person might need chemotherapy. They may need radiation. But we know that a lot of people with cancer end up getting relapse. And why is that? Sometimes, I'm going to say all the time, but sometimes maybe after they, their cancer is, is treated successfully, they go back to living however their lifestyle was, right? But the environment hasn't been changed. The underlying terrain hasn't changed. So we need to make sure the person's underlying terrain, and that could be their diet, that could be their stress, that could be sleep, is in an optimal state so that the disease does not um, has a less of a chance of thriving. Right, a lot of times we think about disease as just popping out of nowhere, but and this slide here basically shows that on the on the right side is uh, sorry on the left side is illness, on the right side is wellness. Too often times when people come into our clinics. Um, you know, they're coming in when their symptoms are basically already, they're already in the yellow, right? They're already, that's when symptoms have been, um, when certain underlying factors have been brewing for a while, typically, a lot of times. We, we typically are actually fairly happy in, our, uh, in healthcare that, well, if someone has no symptoms, that's great, right? They're, they may, you know, occasionally don't eat super well, maybe they exercise not the best, but oftentimes we don't push people this way, right? Because by the time they're already here and then we're treating them, they've already been far along. They could have been developing something for, again, 10, 20, 30 years, right? The joke is always that teenagers, are they can eat whatever they want and 
be fine with it. But then, you know, 40, maybe when they're 40 or 50, they develop certain conditions. They're like, where did this come from? It, the answer really may be your underlying terrain from the last 20, 30 years has not been good. And finally, your body's, you know, finally it's, it's manifesting. And so I think the goal is upstream medicine in, in terms of functional medicine, in terms of pre basically preventative medicine, right? Um, you want help people push them towards wellness and not just we don't want to just do sick care. We want to do well care. We really want to help people move towards the to the right side. Okay. And then the third thing is, um, it, what is functional medicine? Is it, it basically focuses on an individualized collaborative approach. Now, I already mentioned earlier the collaborative approach part, which is it requires the different practitioners to, to uh, help. You may need a health coach. You may need... Um, um, a therapist, a counselor, you may need um, a dietitian, a social worker, right, to help the person in a holistic standpoint. Um, and again, we know that as, as Christians that, you know, God created us spiritual, emotional, physical, and they all, they all affect one another. And we all have different gifts and we all need to help. And so our bodies are, are, are no different. And so we need that collaborative approach. But in terms of the individualized aspect of it, what do I mean by that? Well, we know no two people are the same, right? Even twins have different fingerprints oftentimes. Well, all the time, basically. Um, and so we're all different, and we know that. But how does that manifest in, in practice, in medicine? Uh, some of you guys may have heard of single nucleotide polymorphism. Basically what that is is our DNA has these uh, ACTGs. Basically these are nucleotides. And there may be variations between person to person. And so... Um, the, short, the short abbreviation called SNPs, okay, so I'll just use the word SNPs, which is basically um, variations in our genes. And so that can actually affect the function of the genes. So let me give an example here. So one common one now is MTHFR. Some of you guys may have heard this before, and um, people with, like, uh, drug-resistant depression or some other kind of mood disorders sometimes have uh, SNPs in their MTHFR gene. Okay, so... This, this diagram here basically is um, biochemistry. Sorry for those that are kind of, you know, this is kind of getting a little deeper. But basically, the point of that is MTHFR um, is very important for metabolizing folate, okay? So if you have an MTHFR mutation or a SNP, you may not metabolize folate as uh, well. And so those people may have to take a different form of uh, folic, uh, folic acid. Instead of folic acid, they may have to take... Um, uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is M MTHF, or they have to take folinic acid. Um, MTHFR, again, is important for methylfolate, but folate is also important for your um, neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, um, different things like that. So that may actually affect your uh, mood, right? And it's also important for homocysteine. Some of you guys are familiar with homocysteine. It's a cardiovascular risk factor, also a risk factor for um, certain dementias. And so if someone has a um, genetic polymorphism there, that could just, the implication of, again, it means, well, you, you might have to treat them differently. They may need more vitamins than others. Maybe someone needs a different form of a vitamin. Now, there is genetic testing. Some of you guys are familiar with 23andMe and things like that. I don't do that on you know, everybody, because I don't think, I think the science is still developing on this. You can't just say, oh, I have MTHFR, I, I, I nailed it down. Because 
our genes are much more complicated than that. There's multiple genes that always interact with one another. But again, my point in that is different people, different treatments, different vitamin needs, different, different things. So it's hard. To, we can't just always generalize. Okay, the example two is our liver detox system. So pharmacology, right? We have, for those that don't, aren't familiar, when we take something in our mouth, food, drugs, different things like that, goes to the liver, the liver has to metabolize it, and uses a system called the P4, C, CYP450 system. Okay, and so basically it has different um, enzymes that break down different um, drugs and different things like that. And so the two biggest ones here in terms of drug metabolism is the 3A4 and the 2D6, okay? So 3A4 down the right, uh, 2D6 on the left, 20 to 30% of drugs are metabolized by 2D6, 40 to 45% 40 are metabolized by 3A4. Okay, so what does this mean? Okay, so 2D6, the one I showed earlier, has the, has the most SNPs, um, largest variation between... Per, um, in the population. So some people can be poor metabolizers, some people could be super metabolizers. Okay, so what does this mean? Okay, well, Norco, as you guys know, it, we're talk, we have a talk on that the opioid crisis is one of the biggest prescribed opioids. That one is metabolized a lot by CYP2D6. So someone comes into the clinic and says, I took two Norco, it didn't do anything for me. It's our first, you know, oftentimes the first thought is, this person is a drug seeker, right? This person is not being honest. How can they take two and have no effect? Whereas someone else says, I took half of a Norco and I got super, super sick. It's like, what? That can't be. Like, how can that be? Some people take so many. But So I think the key point of that is someone may be, maybe the person that's getting super sick is a slow metabolizer and the metabolites are breaking up um, or, or breaking down, I'm sorry. Or someone that takes two Norco is, is a hypermetabolizer. They break down the drugs so fast that it almost it doesn't affect them at all, right? And so I think this is very big in terms of pharmacology and also taking patients seriously when they say, hey, I, I, I think it might be the side effect of, of this medication. You're like, no, 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 that can't be that. There's no, that, that's not one of, the list, you know, one of the major side effects. But what if this person has a genetic polymorphism that is causing that? So I think it, it just, for me, it lends pause to think, okay, maybe this person is a canary in the coal mine, or this person is just a hypersensitive person where their, their genes are predisposing them to these symptoms. Okay, number three, example three, is toxin thresholds. Okay, so um, a lot of times how they determine the safety of toxins is, okay, we'll, we'll see what's the average threshold of harm Okay, and then basically go two standard deviations below that and set that limit there as the cutoff of what is permitted. Okay, so basically 98% of people should not be having any kind of harm to a certain chemical or um, toxin. But what if you're in that 2%? What if you're in that even the 0.1% or, you know? So that may be genetically determined in some degree, but it also could be other things too that causes people's sensitivity to, to move, move down. Right, I have a patient that came in. Um, he, uh, he came in with blood pressure like 200 over 100, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I, you, this is this is bad." He's like, "Don't worry, it's because I'm very sensitive to the smell of um, marijuana, and I think I smelled something when I came into your clinic." And I said, "I don't know about that. That just does not sound like a plausible um, 
a plausible story. But, you know, he said, just give me half an hour. I sat him there for half an hour and, you know, checked the blood pressure again. It came down to, like, 160 over, I think, 90. And then we waited a little bit longer. It came down to, like, 130. Okay, it's like, that's weird. And, and the next time he comes in, same thing happens again. Um, and he said, yeah, I, sm- I smelled marijuana again. I, you know, someone. And then th- the third time he came in and, you know, he, he, he didn't have any – he didn't have any of that um, complaints. And so it just made me think, I'm like, huh, maybe he is one of the people, again, in that 0.5% that are very, very sensitive. And I don't know, again, if he was always like that or something triggered his immune system to get super, super uh, sensitive. And I give that as an example, but you guys may have seen, those that are practitioners may have seen those people that say, I'm sensitive to every antibiotic out there. I just can't take any drugs whatsoever because they all make me sick. Right, and so I would say those people are the those people in the the low low percentile. Again, that might be because of SNPs or because of certain um, conditions that have changed their immune system, and that could be. Uh, that, I mean, that's a whole other discussion on its own. But okay, so let me just give some notes on what functional medicine is not, so you don't get the wrong impression of what it isn't. It's not green medicine, just replace a drug with an herb or supplement, okay? I've been guilty of this before, too. It's kind of like, oh, you have um, hyperlipidemia. Oh, instead of a statin, let me give you red yeast rice. Or you have, um, you know, um, what's another example? Like uh, high blood pressure or something. You know, let me give you CoQ10 or celery seed extract or something like that. I think that's helpful in a lot of ways. In some, but again, it doesn't necessarily get to the root cause of the, of the problem. And so, again, functional medicine may entail this, but it doesn't mean this is you've you've done your job just by replacing every single drug with just all herbs and supplements. Okay, medicine. It's not just medicine for the rich, right? Oh, only the rich can afford all this testing and supplements. Because I mentioned things like heavy metals, toxins. You know, we do heavy metal testing in our clinic. We do mycotoxins, which is mold toxins. Sometimes we do Lyme testing. Um, we do uh, pesticide testing for some of our patients. And some of those patients, not for all, all of them, but some of them, those are when we treat those things, that takes care of their symptoms. And that's those are like, wow. I would never have been able to do this in allopathic medicine because there is, I mean, who treat, who, who tests people for pesticides, really? Like, it's not common, right? Now, again, a lot of those things are not covered by insurance, and so, which is unfortunate. But basically, my, my kind of answer to this is twofold. One is, in the long term, you save money. Um, you may pay more costs up front, but someone that comes in all the time with, you know, these symptoms that never get to the root of the issue, of course, in the long term, it causes more long-term suffering for them, and they come back more often. The Cleveland Clinic actually has a functional medicine center now, and they've done some studies, and they just published a study, I think it was like last week, that showed the long-term cost savings of doing medicine this way. Um, when it, and then my second thing is that, you know, true functional medicine, I mean, Yes, it may require a lot of these different tests, but you can always do certain aspects of it, just, again, going back to the basics. What does the person need to take in more of? What do they need to get rid of? Right? Just asking those simple, simple, basic questions. I've been able to help people. You know, one patient came in with chronic um, leg pain, and she, had, uh, she said it had been going on for like seven, eight years. And I said, you know what? This may not work, but why don't you just try doing an elimination diet, cut out gluten, dairy for 
four weeks. Tell me how you do. So next time she comes back in four weeks or maybe a few months later, and she said, you know what? Just cutting out gluten, that got rid of my pain. How come no one had ever told me that? Eight years of pain. And I just got, all I did was get rid of gluten. I'm like, wow, that, that surprised me. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Just a simple, simple thing of a dietary trigger for her pain and her inflammation. That's all that it took, right? And so sometimes you get results like that, and um, sometimes you don't. But scientifically invalid, right? So this is a big... This, this could be a um, concern that, oh, functional medicine is not scientifically uh, valid and it's not accepted in mainstream medicine. Again, I would have some, I have, I have a few things to say about that too. One is clinical practice. They've done studies on this. It's about 17 years behind published, published research. Okay, so when published research comes out, about 17 years later, that's when a lot of the stuff starts coming into to normal practice. So like when I started my, as a PA, like seven, uh, about eight years ago, you know, we were talking about leaky gut, intestinal hyperpermeability. You know, that was kind of like, sounded kind of foofy, kind of like leaky gut. Like, what are you talking about? But nowadays it's, you know, the research is just, you know, now even traditional gastroenterologists that I see are talking about, oh yeah, this person may have uh, leaky gut, maybe have intestinal hyperpermeability. So it's not um, super weird anymore. Or probiotics, right? 10, 15 years ago, no one was talking about probiotics, and now it just seems to be everywhere. So you get an antibiotic here, here's a probiotic. And so I think we're going to probably see that soon with other things, right? Uh, EMF exposure, um, with more Lyme test, Lyme, um, pesticide testing, all these different things I, I would imagine probably in 15, 10, 15 years, it'll be common practice. Um, so I would say that sometimes um, clinical practices behind published research and a lot of the stuff, again, that I've said, there is published research. You just go on PubMed and you'll just type it in. You'll, you'll already see it. Um, and I do think that, you, you know, what we, how we practice needs to be scientifically valid. I'm, you know, I think that is very, very important in terms of practice. It should, it should be evidence-based. Um, so, but again, just think of, you know, what I just said or think about H. pylori. They used to think, you know, years before it was found that there's no way a bacteria could live in the stomach. It's so acidic. There's no way. And then, of course, you know, decades later they find, oh, wait, there is a bacteria. H. pylori can live in the stomach. And so, you know, science, science sometimes will, will catch up to that. Okay. It's not, it's not practical. It takes way too long to practice. Okay, I agree with you, Chinway. What you said sounds great in, pra- in theory, but I can't do that. I have only 10 minutes with a patient, right? And, again, I'm not saying you have to do this with everybody. Someone, uh, someone comes in with a urinary tract infection. I'm not going to say, let's sit down. Let me explore your life history from birth until now to find out why you have a urinary tract infection. I would just treat them for the urinary tract infection, maybe give them some, tell them kids some probiotics, um, maybe take some D-mannose or some other supplement and send them on their way. But if they're coming in with chronic infections, with you know urinary tract infections over and over, and they're having some other types of infections, I might explore a little bit more. It's like, hey, let's come back. Why do you keep getting infections all that often? Um, let's explore again. Maybe your diet. And let's explore your your hygiene. Let's explore your stress levels. Are your, is your stress too high? That's you know depressing your immune system. A lot of different things like that. And so it doesn't. Again, to practice. You know. True, true functional medicine, you may truly have to, you know, spend a lot of time, but there are, there are principles you can apply without, um, without doing the whole shebang. Um, so 
how do we apply all this stuff now? That's basically, and then again, I'll, I'll kind of summarize it up with three main points here. And one is just think, think deeper, right? When someone comes in with something or you yourself have a condition, just ask why is there something deeper? Okay, I'm anemic. Why? Okay, my iron's low. But why is my iron low? Is it because I'm not eating enough iron? Or do I maybe have celiac disease? Maybe I have something else, right? If, if I'm not eating enough, or I am eating enough, why am I not absorbing it? So maybe I'm not having enough vitamin C as a cofactor. Is something else going on? Right? Just ask the questions for yourself. Ask it for the patients. And um, sometimes this requires, you know, this is hard work. And let's say on the mission field, uh, people are maybe familiar with this. You can ask, okay, why is this person having a headache? Well, they may be dehydrated. Why are they dehydrated? Or they're not drinking enough water? Why are they not drinking enough water? Because they're drinking soda. Why are they not? Why are they drinking soda? Well, their water's not clean. Why is the water not clean? Well, it's because you know the the infrastructure is not there. So it, it could be five, six layers deep. But again, my encouragement is just to ask the question, dig deeper. Okay, think long term, and you know this applies meaning to. Um, to, to the functional medicine and, and beyond. So um, Band-Aid medicine, again, may be helpful, but we want to think longer term, right? Like uh, someone with diabetes, you want to give them medication, but you also want to educate them longer term. And um, we know that our, hopefully that what the patient does doesn't require uh, us to continually be in the picture. So, like, they always say that about long-term missions, right? Like, we should work ourselves out of a job. We should train the locals, and then they should be able to help others. I would say, in terms of health, a big part of it is also education. You should be able to, someone with diabetes, you should be able to educate them. They should have the tools to know how to manage it, them, manage it and then hopefully they won't even have to see you as often because their diabetes is so under control because they've been able to manage their, all these factors that are contributing to their diabetes. And then lastly is just think wide. Think wide um, meaning, um, again, you might require um, re referring to people beyond your, your expertise, dietitians, social workers, um, chiropractors, acupuncturists, uh, maybe um, you know, lawyers, advocates, pastors, counselors. It's, taking care of people is it's complicated, and we are limited in terms of our, our own um, abilities and knowledge. So basically, if you guys want to find out more about it, um, Institute for Functional Medicine is a good place to start. There's some books out there you guys can um, read and to kind of get some just introductory um, ideas of what it entails. So if you have any questions, um, I think I have about five minutes here for questions, and you guys can always certainly email me as well. So um, I guess I will open up for questions. Anybody have questions? Yeah, back there. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll just leave the slide up there for a second. Yes. Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, so I first started off as a dietitian. So I'm giving a talk later on nutrition. But basically, I worked as a dietitian for three years, and then after going on a medical missions trip to Malawi. I decided to go back to school and I became a PA. And so as a PA, I wanted a job that would 
hopefully use some of my nutrition. And by the grace of God, I ended up having a job in internal medicine where we funk, where we specialize also in functional medicine as well. And so in my clinic right now in, in Sacramento, California, I do all the nutrition counseling in our clinic. And I do functional medicine to a certain degree. Mostly some of the other practitioners do more of it. Um, I got trained through Institute for Functional Medicine. They're not the only organization, but they are um, it, one of the biggest ones, I guess I can say. And so it ended up being like a five-year process for me to be certified through them, but you, people could do it through like two years, one or two years. Yeah. yeah I was just wondering about So, so the question is uh, AMA and getting them like on board with this. And insurance, insurance companies, yeah. I think part of it is in terms of more data on like, and again, I think it's helpful that the Institute for Functional Medicine published you know a recent study on that that there's cost savings because again, I, if you look at it. Sh- Without data, insurance companies will be like, well, I mean, this is not well-validated, so it's not mainstream medicine, so we're not going to cover it, right? Sometimes we do have insurance companies cover some basic tests that are um, important for us to to do. But for us as a practice, um, we just actually take the hit and and just do, like, hour-long appointments with people, hour-and-a-half-long appointments, and just charge them for an extended visit. We don't even... Because a lot of the people that actually do functional medicine, unfortunately, they, they do concierge medicine, which is, you know, charge 700 or anywhere from 500 to $900 a visit. And, of course, nobody can, not, not a lot of people, I'll just say, can afford that unless you're, you're well off, you know, middle class or higher. So a lot of people that need this, unfortunately, are the people in the, the lower economic status. And so I, I don't know if right now, I would say probably, again, with more data, maybe in 10 years, maybe eventually this will become more mainstream. And I think there's more, this movement is kind of gaining steam. So more people here, I'm surprised, you know, that, that many people here have heard of it. I would say probably 10 years ago, not many people have even heard of this term, functional medicine. So we'll see what happens, but yeah. Okay, one more. Yeah, so the question is the uh, difference between integrative medicine, func- functional medicine, lifestyle medicine. You know, there, I think there's a lot of overlap between all of them. So, you know, lifestyle medicine, I mean, this is lifestyle medicine. And, you know, integrative medicine, I think, incorporates a lot of, like, um, other modalities, herbal, medic, uh, herbals, you know, acupuncturists, chiropractors. I think functional medicine basically was just turned by the, by the founder, Jeffrey Bland, uh, about 20, 30 years ago. But he basically used a lot of the same concepts, again, that have been around for a while. And so people will use it in different um, – some people will use it interchangeably, I would say. And um, I don't know, like someone says they're, they're an integrative doctor. I, I, a lot of times I would ask, well, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? And even the functional medicine realm, sometimes you'll find people that are way off the rails here and then other people that are more conservative here too. So it's kind of like Christian. He's like, okay – what do you mean by Christian? Like, you know, there's, there's people will use it differently. So I think you have to actually probably 
define terms whenever you talk to, to the person. Okay, well, I think that's it. Thank you for your attention.